Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they shall revile you, and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio and The Confusion stops here. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, first off, or well, for one thing, if you regularly assist at the ordinary form of the Mass, you go to the Vernacular Mass, the Novus Ordo Missae, there are some more uh, new changes coming to the liturgy. Okay, no big surprise there. They can't seem to stop tinkering with it. Uh, but we're going to talk about what you can expect to uh, see at church uh, beginning next week. Also, we're going to talk about uh, the Word of God in our lives and how do you receive the Word. And we will turn to Scripture and tradition to discover the truth about St. Mary Magdalene. But uh, first, as promised last week, and as you may have already guessed from the verses I quoted at the top of the program, I want to begin with a word or two about suffering. In the epistle for Sexagesima Sunday, the Sunday that began this Second week of preparation for Lent in the Old Rite, St. Paul, this is in 2 Corinthians 11, boasts about his sufferings. He tells us that he was stoned, that he was scourged, that is, he um, received 40 lashes minus one five times, that he was beaten with rods three times, that he was shipwrecked three times, that he suffered, quote, in journeying often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils from my own nation, in perils from the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils from false brethren, in labor and painfulness, in much watchings, which is, uh, you know, uh, going without sleep, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Now, this is quite a... Uh, a litany of, of miseries, but we all, and we also know that St. Paul was imprisoned and that he was eventually executed, that he was martyred. But for all of his remarkable accomplishments as an apostle, his preaching, his, his theology, um, St. Paul only ever boasts about his sufferings and his humiliations. And why should that be? And it's because it is his sufferings that unite him with Christ who he reminds us was crucified in his weakness. It is by suffering that you and I, the same as St. Paul, become more like Christ and his blessed mother, Our Lady of Sorrows. And yet we tend to think uh, about sufferings and humiliations that they're always a sign of God's disfavor or his punishment because we forget that suffering is actually good for us both for the sinner and for the just person, because sufferings are a means of uh, conversion for the sinner, and for the just, they are opportunities of greater merit. And that is why suffering was the common condition of all the saints, because suffering is very meritorious. And for one thing, suffering intensifies our love of God because we must learn to rely on his strength to get us through it. Suffering also has a refining influence on our character. <clears throat> it's like the story of Michelangelo unveiling his statue of Moses. Uh, somebody asked him how he created such a masterpiece, and the maestro famously replied that God put Moses in the marble, and I just chipped away everything that wasn't Moses. And uh, just like Michelangelo saw Moses in the marble, God sees Christ in us. And suffering is the means that the divine sculptor employs to chip away everything in us that does not conform to the image of his son. And suffering tends to free us from our selfish motives and to purify our, our goals, our aspirations. The more we suffer, the more we desire to please God rather than self. 
because suffering elevates the mind and chastens the heart and its afflictions, right, our emotions. Suffering braces the will, develops fortitude, manliness, puts uh, the sincerity of our intentions to the trial. In a word, suffering is a test of virtue. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. And suffering is conducive to sanctification because every sorrow, every setback, every trial can be turned into a blessing by the goodwill of the suffering Christian. St. Ignatius Loyola said there is no wood more proper to enkindle and feed the fire of divine love than the wood of the cross. In other words, if the Lord sends you great tribulations, it's because he's got plans for you, that he wills for you to become a saint. And therefore, sufferings are a token of God's love. Because, St. Paul says, whom the Lord uh, loveth, he chastiseth. Persevere under discipline. God dealeth with you as with his sons. For what son is there whom the Father doth not correct? Now all chastisement for the present indeed seemeth not to bring with it joy but sorrow, but afterward it will yield to them that are exercised by it the most peaceable fruit of justice. And we know that to them that love God all things work together unto good, to such as are called to be saints. And lastly, he reminds us that sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to become that will be revealed in us. So what is he saying? That God is good, that he loves us as a father, and that our sorrows are really blessings in disguise, because sufferings afford the opportunity to practice many virtues of patience, repentance, fortitude, compassion, kindness, humility, courage, generosity, virtues that develop greatness and nobility of soul. It's suffering that Thomas Akempis is talking about in The Imitation of Christ when he says, if only we would exert ourselves and take a firm stand in this battle, we would see how God comes to our aid. For he is always ready to help those who put their trust in him. He even provides occasions for us to do battle so that we may be overcome or so that we may overcome and be victorious. So sufferings are those occasions, the God-given opportunities for victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And therefore, when we are animated by this, this supernatural motive, suffering is a great source of merit and happiness. Uh, according to Father Galway, in his book, The Watcher of the Passion, to his chosen ones, who he does not call servants but friends, Christ makes this special promise. Quote, you shall, I promise you, before you die, drink of my chalice. His promise to St. Paul in Acts 9.16 was, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. How blind then are we if we believe that every suffering is a calamity and a proof of God's wrath, and that prosperity and nothing but prosperity is a sure sign of his favor. And he offers these three examples. One, he says, God sends suffering in his mercy that we may atone for past sins. In other words, to do here quickly the, the slow work of purgatory. Number two, he sends suffering also to prevent sin and to draw us out of sin, like as the way suffering brought home the prodigal son. And lastly, he sends suffering to his chosen ones, as to St. Paul. And these chosen ones become, like him, savior to many, unquote. In other words, your sufferings may, uh, uh, like St. Paul's, provide an example that will bring others to Christ. Well, sorrow and suffering are especially blessed and sanctified by the sacred passion of Jesus and ought to help us to greater union with him. In the prayer of fortitude, we ask our Lord, give us grace to see these crosses bravely borne by us will keep us close to thee. And scripture plainly tells us that if we live piously in Jesus Christ, we will suffer. Our Lord himself says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he that taketh not up his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. That's why St. Teresa of Avila said, the Son of God has accomplished our salvation by the means of sufferings. He would teach us by this that there is no means more proper to glorify God and to sanctify our souls than to suffer. 
And St. Vincent de Paul said, if we knew the precious treasure, which is hidden in our infirmities, we would receive them with the same joy that we receive the greatest benefits, and we would bear them without complaining. The year of our Lord, 2020, was an extraordinary year of suffering for people all around the world. And 2021 promises in many ways to just increase and and multiply the particular suffering uh, of the persecution. I think of Catholics in particular, and Catholics in the United States precisely from false brethren in high places. But the fact is that every year brings its own trials, and it is up to us to learn from the saints to receive everything that happens to us as coming from the hand of God, precisely for our sanctification and salvation. And to remember the words of St. Paul in Hebrews 10, patience is necessary for you that doing the will of God, you may receive the promise. And I will give the last word to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who, as usual, in my opinion, said it best, let us glory in tribulation, for in it lies the hope of glory. And that's no nonsense. Okay, I think we're off to a good start. And remember that later in the program, we're going to talk about uh, how we receive the Word of God, what pitfalls to avoid, how to receive God's Word in a way that bears fruit in our life. And also, there are changes a-coming to the ordinary form of the Roman Rite, uh, and also uh, a change coming in the Novus Ordo calendar, a new feast day. We're going to be talking about all of that when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Okay, so they're making yet another change to the Novus Ordo Liturgy. What a shock! Uh, obviously, uh, it's, it's not a shock because they can't stop themselves from continually tinkering with the liturgy. Now, this is according to an announcement called A Change to the Concluding Doxology of the Orations, Effective Ash Wednesday, February 17, 2021. Now, you can always count on a Vatican congregation for a snappy title. Uh, in May, it says, in May of 2020, The Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments wrote to the English-speaking conferences of bishops regarding the concluding doxology of the Collects of the Roman Missal. And a doxology, by the way, is a a Trinitarian prayer, a prayer of adoration that names all three persons of the Blessed Trinity, like um, the glory be to the Father, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, etc. That's a doxology. Now, in this case... We're talking about the doxology recited at the end of the collect, or the opening prayer of the Mass, viz, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now, what could be wrong with that? What do they need to change? Well, quoting again from the document, specifically, the congregation pointed out that the current translation, which concludes in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, is incorrect. There is no mention of one in the Latin, and Deus in the Latin text refers to Christ. So, to illustrate what they mean, if you remove the clauses about the Father and the Son from that doxology, what you have left is, through our Lord Jesus Christ, God forever and ever. So they're saying that this word God here doesn't refer to all of the persons of the Holy Trinity, the the one God, but specifically to the divinity of Christ. Uh, Therefore, says the Congregation for Divine Worship, the correct translation is simply, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. The Cardinal Prefect, that's Cardinal Seurat, has pointed out the importance of affirming this Christological truth amid the, the religious pluralism of today's world, unquote. Okay, now I'm obviously all for accurate translations. Um, when the, uh, uh, the corrected translation of the English Missal came out in 2010, I was thrilled. Of course, there's still, there, there's lots and lots of prayers that don't correspond uh, word for word to the Latin. For example, um, after the gospel, the priest says, the gospel of the Lord, 
and we respond, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Latin, it's verbum domini, just the word of the Lord. The word gospel isn't mentioned anywhere. And the response, um, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, in the Latin, it's simply laus tibi Christe, praise to you, Christ. So you know what I'm saying? It's like this, this kind of word-for-word word accuracy on this one prayer just seems kind of nitpicky to me. You know, um, I get that the word Deus refers back to Jesus, but I don't really see how the addition of the word one in any way suggests that, that Christ isn't God or, or somehow promotes religious pluralism. I mean, even traditional missiles translate it both ways, you know, with or without one. Um, I think that the translation that I use most uh, often says, uh, through Christ thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, uh, ever one God, world without end. You know, and, and so, and another one just says God, world without end. The point is, um, even uh, according to the, uh, the Federation of Diocesan Liturgical Commissions, who put out an announcement <clears throat> regarding this change, they said, and I quote, uh, when the translation of the missile currently in use was in process, right, or progress, that's the 2010 translation, it says ICEL, the International Commission on English and the Liturgy, pointed out the discrepancy to the Congregation of Divine Worship in Rome, but was told to retain the use of one God in the new translation. Okay, obviously... They've changed their mind. So the letter goes on to say, in light of the congregation's most recent direction in this matter, the Latin Rite bishops of the USCCB have voted to amend the U.S. text to the general instruction of the Roman Missal to reflect the change, and the Congregation for Divine Worship has confirmed this decision as it already has for the Episcopal Conferences of England, Wales, Ireland, and Canada. Now, there's no mention of the other Anglophone countries, Australia, South America, or South America, South Africa, or New Zealand, <clears throat> which I'm presumably going to continue using the other translation, but in any case, starting next week on Ash Wednesday, priests of the United States will replace one God forever and ever with God forever and ever, assuming they don't forget. Now, of course, if, you know, like me, you have the opportunity to assist at the traditional Latin Mass, at the extraordinary form of the Mass, you don't need to be bothered by this constant tinkering with the texts or, or the translations by each successive wave of liturgists and scripture scholars who are convinced that their own insights are, of course, the best insights, uh, which virtually, of course, guarantees the incessant fiddling with the, the new order that the church uh, will continue indefinitely. And, uh, and speaking of constant tinkering, the calendar isn't safe either, so the Novus Ordo Mise will also soon have a new liturgical celebration in, I believe, the month of May, which is the Memorial of the Holy Family of Bethany. It's uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, according once again uh, to the Congregation of Divine Worship, Cardinal Seurat at the CDW, he says, In the household of Bethany, the Lord experienced uh, the family spirit and friendship of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and for this reason, the Gospel of John states that he loved them. Martha generously offered him hospitality, Mary listened attentively to his words, and Lazarus promptly emerged from the tomb at the command of the one who humiliated death, which is a great way to refer to our Savior. The traditional uncertainty, it goes on, the traditional uncertainty of the Latin church about the identity of Mary, the Magdalene to whom Christ appeared after his resurrection, the sister of Martha, the sinner whose sins the Lord had forgiven, which resulted in the inclusion of Martha alone on 29 July in the Roman calendar. In other words, since Mary Magdalene already had a feast day, um, they, they gave her sister Martha one of her own. Uh, this has been resolved, he says, in recent studies and times, as attested by the current Roman martyrology. So read New and Improved, which also commemorates Mary and Lazarus on that day. Okay, so not, not uh, May, rather, but July. The announcement continues, therefore, the Supreme Pontiff, Pope Francis, Accepting the proposal of this dicastery has decreed that 29 July be designated in the Roman, uh, general Roman calendar as the memorial of Saints Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, unquote. Now, I just have a, a couple of comments to make. I mean, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm not offended that they're um, adding Mary and Lazarus to the Martha's feast day. But the Cardinal speaks of the quote-unquote traditional uncertainty of the Latin Church 
about the identity of Mary, etc. And yet, there isn't a, a, a de fide um, interpretation of these various verses. But I thought it'd be fun to take a look at what the tradition actually has to say. And there are several scriptural episodes that have been traditionally associated with Mary Magdalene. So number one, you've got the sinful woman uh, who wept over Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair in the home of Simon the Pharisee. That's in in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And then you have Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus in Luke 10 and in John 11 and 12. And number three, you have Mary Magdalene uh, identified by name and identified by name in all four of the Gospels. So all four evangelists at one place or another refer to Mary Magdalene. Uh, Now, the allegedly uncertain tradition of the Latin Church is to identify all three figures with the one woman. And this tradition was corroborated by the weighty scholarship of Pope St. Gregory the Great, who I would remind you is only one of two popes to officially bear that title, the other being Leo the Great, so Pope uh, St. Leo I. Pope Gregory I is, of course, justifiably well-known for his restoration of the liturgical chant that we still refer to as Gregorian chant uh, in his honor. And, uh, you know, not to mention that Gregory the Great is one of the four great doctors of the Church, along with um, Saints Augustine and Ambrose and the incomparable Saint Jerome. And like them, he was centuries closer to the events of the Gospel. He had access to materials that are no longer extant and therefore not available to any modern scholar. And frankly, that's enough for me (laughs) to accept um, uh, you know, his opinion. And I would go on to say, speaking of Gregorian chant, I remember reading something by Father Fessio some years ago, because um, he did his doctoral thesis under then-professor Joseph Ratzinger at Tübingen, um, precisely on the Psalms. And <clears throat> he realized, you know, the Psalms are songs, and therefore that means they were sung in the temple. And he wondered if, if the melodies had ever been uh, written down or, or uh, preserved in some way. And so he went to a rabbi who was kind of the, at the time, considered the, the authority regarding the temple worship and regarding the Psalms, and he said, you know, are, have those melodies been preserved? And, and he looked at him like he was crazy. He said, of course they have. It's the, the Gregorian chant. So, you know, you can see, again, that Pope Gregory, he lived in a time when, when you know, Biblical Greek was still a spoken language when, when people were still conversing in Latin and so forth, and, and he had access to uh, traditions that were still, you know, um, uh, alive, if you will. And, and modern scholars don't have that. Um, and also, of course, we have the testimony of the Roman breviary for July 22nd, which is the feast of Mary Magdalene, which identifies her uh, also as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and in the antiphon for first vespers, completes the circle by identifying her also with the otherwise unnamed uh, sinful woman of Luke 7. So it's part of the liturgy, it's part of the tradition of the church. And traditions don't exist in a vacuum. They don't spring up from nowhere. And the virtue of piety, especially for a Catholic, demands that apart from some deeply compelling reason, they should be honored. Uh, the best argument uh, for this position, by the way, must be the imposition of the new Mass after Vatican II. I mean, the Church has yet to recover from the the remarkable fallout uh, of abandoning her traditional liturgy, and her, her liturgical patrimony of centuries for a fabricated liturgy that was concocted by a committee. Okay, so let's look at that biblical testimony behind the tradition regarding Mary Magdalene. First, we have the anointing of Christ's feet by the unnamed sinful woman in Luke 7. And this episode uh, is a part of our Lord's Galilean ministry, when he's still up in the Gentile territory. Uh, and immediately afterwards, St. Luke describes the women who ministered to Christ during uh, his preaching circuit in Galilee, among them being Mary, who is called Magdalene, out of whom seven devils were gone forth. That's Luke 8, 2 but he doesn't tell us explicitly that she is the sinner of the previous chapter. However, according to the Venerable Bede, I quote, Mary Magdalene is the same woman of whom we have just read. 
Indeed, virtually all uh, Catholic Bible history materials refer to that episode as the penitent Magdalene. And Bede tells us that when St. Luke relates Mary Magdalene going with the Lord, he rightly distinguishes her by her name, but when describing the sinner, speaks of her generally as a woman, lest the mark of her former guilt should blacken the name, a name of so great report. Okay, we're going to be back with lots more on this when we return right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. Stick with us, and we shall return. Hey, welcome back. No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about uh, St. Mary Magdalene and her identification with the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. And that Venerable Bede has pointed out that um, although Mary Magdalene is mentioned by name in chapter 8, he does not make the explicit connection between that sinful woman and Mary Magdalene. And Bede suggests that's because Mary Magdalene was still alive and was a great saint and a pillar of the Christian community. And he didn't necessarily want to associate her with this woman who had to unloose her hair uh, to dry our Lord's feet after bathing them with her tears. Although he does say that seven uh, devils had been uh, cast out or had gone forth from her. Pope Gregory says, uh, what is understood by the seven devils, but all vices. And Mary therefore had seven devils for she was full of every kind of vice. And this well describes a woman who, according to our Lord, Um, having loved much, was forgiven much. And let's consider that scene, this this woman entering a banquet in the house of a Pharisee where Jesus has been invited to dine, who coming in and weeping at his feet, uh, bathed them with her tears, and then loosening her hair, uh, she wiped our Lord's feet and then poured the precious ointment over them to testify her veneration and love. She abased herself as far as she could and did penance in public because it was in public that she had sinned. This is according to the tradition of the church. St. Gregory says her heart was so full of inward shame that she minded not the outward shame in the eyes of men. And that's a reference uh, specifically to uh, loosing her hair in public, which we'll talk about in a minute. But moving on then to Luke 10, um, he tells us of Christ's visit to the home of Martin and, uh, Martha and Mary, in a certain town, although he does not identify the town uh, as Bethany. However, it is clear from Luke 9.53 that Christ had definitely left Galilee, and it's quite possible that this town was, in fact, Bethany. And that would seem confirmed by the preceding parable of the Good Samaritan, which was almost certainly um, spoken on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. But here again, uh, we can note that there's no explicit identification of the three women the sinner, Mary, the sister of Martha, and Mary Magdalene, as, as the same woman. And so if we only uh, had St. Luke's gospel to guide us, we would have very little biblical grounds for identifying them all as the same person. St. John, however, clearly identifies Mary, uh, Mary of Bethany, so-called, although the Scripture never calls her that, uh, with the woman who anointed Christ's feet in Luke 7. And it should be noted that uh, already in John chapter 11, he refers to her as Mary, she that anointed the Lord's feet. And that's past tense. Now, uh, most modern scholars just assume that John uh, is referring to the anointing that he himself will describe in the next chapter. But why identify her as she who anointed the Lord's feet in the past tense if that anointing hasn't happened yet? Much less if there was some other woman and a sinner to boot who was already known for having done the same, right? It seems very clear that he's, that he's equating her with that particular woman. You know, and if, if it's, they were not the same woman, uh, it seems likely that he would have tried to distance Mary from the, the sinner in the city. But the traditional understanding is that St. John, writing so long after the event, so his gospel wasn't written until the end of the first century, at a time when Mary and, and the rest of them were, were already passed away, he wants to point out to us that she really was that same woman as the sinner of Luke 7. And it is likely, as, as uh, Venerable Bede points out, that St. Luke purposely obscured the identity of the sinful woman precisely because he didn't want her to defame uh, a living person. And because we can see he certainly does that in the case of St. Matthew. Because when Matthew uh, was a tax collector, you know, he refers to him for that reason uh, 
uh, he refers to him as Levi the publican and not by his apostolic name. So if that understanding is correct, and if the sinful woman and Mary, the sister of Martha, are in fact one and the same, further examination of John's gospel makes it almost impossible to deny that Mary of Bethany, so-called, is in fact Mary Magdalene. See, at that supper in Bethany, <clears throat> Jesus praises Mary for the second anointing when Judas complains that the ointment wasn't sold and the money given to the poor. Uh, and Jesus says, she hath wrought a good work upon me. That is, the anointing wasn't an act of extravagance. And he says, the poor you have always with you, but me you have not always. Right? So in other words, you can always be charitable to the poor, but I'm not going to be around so much longer. And she, in pouring this ointment upon my body, hath done it against my burial. In other words, he's willing to receive now, before his death, this you know service of love that by reason of his resurrection, he's not going to be able to receive in the tomb because the tomb will be empty when they arrive. Amen, I say to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which she hath done shall be told for a memory of her. Okay, a memory of whom? In view of all this, is it even credible to assume that this was not the same Mary who took her place at the foot of the cross? Um, you know, I want to bring to, to your attention that... Um, Judas says, why was this not sold for 300 pence? It says in the Douay, uh, literally, it's 300 denarii. And a denarius was a, a coin which was equitable to a day's wage in the uh, ancient times. And um, St. Gregory tells us that a pound of nard, and, and that's what the uh, scripture says, was a pound of spike nard, would actually have cost 400 denarii. So... Um, when Judas says, why wasn't it sold for 300? He's talking about what was left over. See, anybody that uses essential oils, okay, you, you know that a little of it goes a long way. So there's a, it, it's really unlikely that Mary Magdalene put a whole pound of this ointment on our Lord. But if she used a quarter of it, that's still extravagant, a quarter of a pound of spikenard. And it, you know, it tells us that the fragrance filled the whole house. Well, no kidding. But that would have left... Um, you know, three quarters of a pound over. And it is, our, and so it, that's consistent with him saying, why isn't this sold? He's talking about which, the remainder. Why isn't this sold for three? And why, why is she keeping it? And our Lord says, literally in John, um, John's gospel, he says, um, she keeps it against my burial. In other words, let her hold on to that, you know, to bring to the tomb, which in fact Mary Magdalene does. Okay, so, you know, like I say, it, this seems to be the same Mary who would take her place at the foot of the cross and at the burial of Christ. You know, and it is precisely that Mary Magdalene, who all four evangelists says stood at the foot of the cross and assisted at his burial. It's Mary Magdalene, the scripture says, sought vainly for his body on Sunday morning that she might anoint it. And in a culture when women could not give legal testimony, it was Mary Magdalene who became the first recorded witness of the resurrection, thereby becoming the apostle to the apostles. And while St. John calls her Mary Magdalene in John 19, 25, uh, and verses 1 and 18 of chapter 20, he calls her simply Mary in verses 11 and 16. So this is according to the uh, traditional Catholic encyclopedia. The series of events forms a consistent whole. The sinner comes early in the ministry to seek for pardon. She is described immediately afterwards as Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven devils were gone forth. Shortly after, we find her sitting at the Lord's feet and hearing his words. To the Catholic mind, it all seems fitting and natural. At a later period, Mary and Martha turn to Christ, the Son of the living God, and he restores to them their brother Lazarus. A short time afterwards, they make him a supper, and Mary once more repeats the act that she had performed when a penitent. At the Passion, she stands nearby and sees him laid in the tomb, and she is the first witness of his resurrection, uh, accepting always his mother, to whom he must needs have appeared first, though the New Testament is silent on this point. Notice, they're going with the tradition. Uh, in our view, then, there were two anointings of Christ's feet. The first took place at a comparatively early date, the second two days before the Last Supper, but it was one and the same woman who performed this pious act on each occasion. And this isn't even taking into account the fact that the church's liturgy and the divine office 
uh, for July 22nd, explicitly identifies the sinful woman, Mary, the sister of Martha, and uh, Mary Magdalene as all one and the same. So there you have what today's Congregation for Divine Worship calls the traditional uncertainty of the Latin Church about the identity of Mary. Now, this interpretation that I've presented here, it's not infallible. It's not de fide. It wasn't the only opinion even in the early church. But it is the tradition. It's the prevailing tradition for over a millennia in the Latin church. And whatever the case may be, all of these incidents, and you know, combining them and referring them to Mary Magdalene does no violence to her character, but uh, on the contrary, serves to better illustrate it. Everything that is said of Mary, the sister of Martha, and the unnamed sinful woman harmonizes perfectly with the unique relationship that existed between our Lord and Mary Magdalene. And why was she called Mary Magdalene? It's like, well, we know that in ancient times, you know, a person's hometown was one way of identifying, um, identifying that person when they weren't at home, right? So, for example, our Lord was the son of Joseph or the son of the carpenter uh, when he was at home, but, uh, you know, to his neighbors, but he was known as Jesus of Nazareth every place else. So this is, uh, it's a common assumption that Mary lived in Magdala, which is up in Galilee near Tiberias, which explains her presence in uh, Galilee at the first anointing. Although one, one uh, kind of New Order apologist uh, suggested that uh, Mary Magdalene is, you know, we can, we can prove that uh, they're no longer, that it's not the same person because, you know, people uh, were called by their hometown. So Mary of Magdala and Mary of Bethany can't be the, the same person. We've solved the puzzle, he says. We know for sure they're two different people. And this has become clear in the quote-unquote recent studies uh, alluded to by the Congregation of Divine Worship. He says, now we've carefully examined the way uh, these (laughs) names worked, you know, Jewish names worked back in the first century. Honestly, that's the big discovery? There's something new about this? The fathers, the doctors of the church didn't know how Jewish names worked? You know, and of course they did. You know, and and uh, if you read a book written before Vatican II, you might discover that it is also entirely possible that the name Magdalene derives from an old Hebrew expression that literally means uh, curling women's hair, but was a euphemism for a woman of easy virtue or an adulteress. You know, and th- there's so much in the in the tradition about Mary Magdalene that it's impossible to cover it in a single program. Uh, the biblical exegesis alone would take too long. For now. Suffice it to say that in Scripture, a pattern emerges. And we'll talk about that and also how we receive the Word of God when we come back with more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Okay, just to wrap up our uh, our little discussion of uh, Mary Magdalene, um, I mentioned before the break that that Magdalene could come from an expression regarding a woman's hair, and you know you know we know that um, in in first century Jewish culture, pious Jewish women always covered their hair in public, they always they veiled themselves, and so women of easy virtue, women who were guilty of some kind of uh, sexual immorality, sometimes it was imposed on them as a penance to loose their hair in public because that was a shameful thing. And that is the striking feature of both these anointings that Mary publicly undoes her hair to dry our Lord's feet, which is consistent with the act of a penitent sinner. Now, I I said that uh, a pattern emerges in the scripture. I just want to share that with you as a final thing. Um, You see Mary at our Lord's feet, uh, weeping tears of contrition in Galilee and then returning home to Bethany and sitting at his feet to hear his teaching while her sister Martha prepares the supper. And then at his feet again, weeping tears of mourning over the uh, death of her brother Lazarus. And then at his feet, uh, anointing them with the precious ointment two days before the Last Supper in preparation for his death. And then at his feet again, weeping at the foot of the Holy Cross. And finally at the resurrection, falling at his feet again and weeping again but this time tears of joy. Like I said, I have no problem with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus sharing a memorial on the Novus Ordo calendar. But I don't believe that that means the church uh, has to abandon her tradition 
about Mary's identity, especially since the traditional Mass and divine office are still in use by the clergy and laity who celebrate and assist at the extraordinary form of the Mass with the blessing of and in full communion with the Holy Catholic Church. And that is no nonsense. And finally, how do you respond to the Word of God? And the gospel for this uh, Sunday at the beginning of the week, Sexagesima Sunday, is the parable of the seed, or uh, possibly better known as the parable of the sower, Matthew's account of our Lord's first and most familiar parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it had no moisture." And some fell among thorns, and the thorns growing up with it choked it. And some fell upon good ground, and being sprung up, yielded fruit an hundredfold. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable might be, to whom he said, To you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God, and they by the wayside are they that hear. Then the devil cometh and taketh the word of God out of their heart, lest believing they should be saved. Now they upon the rock are they who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no roots, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among the thorns are they who have heard, and going their way are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and yield no fruit. But on that, that on good ground are they who in a good and perfect heart hearing the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit in penance. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. The parable of the seed, the parable of the sower, is about the different ways of receiving the word of God. The sower is our Lord Jesus Christ, who, through the apostles and their successors, proclaims the word of God. The field is the heart of of human beings for which the divine seed is intended. The chief lesson contained in the parable is that the effect of God's word upon the soul depends entirely on the preparation and disposition of the one who hears it, just as the fruitfulness of a natural seed depends on the cultivation and quality of the earth in which it is sown. The three cases mentioned in which the seed brought forth no fruit point out the chief hindrances which man puts in the way of the efficacy of God's word. The first are those who lack the good will to receive God's word with faith. Well, they hear it well enough, but they will not open their hearts to it because the devil and his human agents have succeeded by scorn or prejudice or false explanations uh, in setting them against everything supernatural so that they utterly refuse to believe. This is the big mass of people these days. And you take, for instance, in our Lord's time, the Pharisees and the enlightened men of every age. And in the second class, we have uh, um, those of a good will who are religious-minded people, but they're shallow, and they're weak in character, and they receive the Word of God eagerly, but their faith doesn't penetrate into the depths of their heart, and it certainly doesn't penetrate into their will, and so it lacks firmness, it lacks that steadfastness, and so they fall away as soon as the trials and the persecution put their faith to the test. So you remember the Israelites in the desert. Why did you lead us out of Egypt, you know? Uh, And the third class are those who have faith and who hold fast to their faith, but who don't live up to it. So being quite absorbed in the things of this world, they give themselves up to the concupiscence of the eyes and the concupiscence of the flesh and the pride of life and so forth, and they bring forth no fruits worthy of faith. They have faith, yes, but it's, it's a dead faith. And, and how many people does this you know, represent? People who are otherwise good Christians, but who, whose lives are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. You know, if, if 50% of secular marriages end in divorce and 50% of Catholic marriages in, end in divorce, what kind of witness are we giving to the world? So the three enemies, the principal enemies of the faith are the devil and his allies who want to you know, deprive us of our willingness to believe. Number two, it's the weakness and vacillation of the heart and the will. And then three, the evil passions which govern the world. 
And the Word of God only bears fruit in those who, besides accepting it, will cherish it in their heart. And that needs to be a heart purified by faith. Uh, And finally, the Word of God bears fruit in those who patiently and perseveringly live up to their faith. So, religion and grace. You know, this is no-nonsense Catholic, and I'm always about trying to make sense, but, but religion and grace are not just matters of reason. They begin with reason. They're never opposed to reason. Intellect and will are the, are the chief uh, uh, spiritual properties of the soul. But religion and grace are matters chiefly of the will and also of the heart. A powerful understanding isn't sufficient or even necessary for salvation or to enable us to, to live a life according to faith. What's indispensable is a good heart and a good will to be willing to receive what is great and what is supernatural. Jesus says, he that hath ears, let him hear. You know, we're constantly bombarded with advice. Uh, And this was always true, but with the advent of the smartphone, you know, we now have 24-7 access to all kinds of media, and and the fact that the comm box and, and social media lets everybody put in their two cents about everything, it's easy to work ourselves into a state of mind where nobody can tell us anything. Even though we have more, more, uh, access to information than ever before, and we won't accept any of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, there are some people who start an argument no matter what advice is given them. And that's been true, of course, for centuries. Even though the wisdom of the Scripture and the tradition of the Church have stood the test of time. The problem is that people today are still like the soil uh, uh, talked about in the parable. Some will benefit from the wisdom and some won't. Uh, it's like um, the old story, the three men went to the doctor with stomach pain. And the doctor examines the first man and says, I'm sorry, but you have appendicitis and you need an immediate operation. But the man says to himself, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I, you know, I've been eating green apples. That's, that's all it is. And then the doctor tells the next man the same thing. Uh, you have appendicitis, you need an operation. But the second man says, well, maybe he's right about the appendicitis, but I, I don't need an operation. I think I can just treat this myself. You know, you put on a hot water bottle. And then the story is the same with the third man. You, you have appendicitis, you need an, an operation, except he follows the doctor's advice and has the appendectomy. And within a few days, he's up and around and coincidentally just in time to attend the funeral of the other two. The point is, when we hear the Word of God, we can act, we can respond in different ways, just like the people in the Gospel. We can refuse. We can do something else. Or we can do what God asks us to do. And in this regard, there's another common failing that we fall into. And that is to sit and to listen to the Word of God and to say to yourself, well, that doesn't, that's not me, that's the other guy. That's the guy over there in the other pew. Right? It's like the old story of the woman um, who comes up to the priest after Mass and says, oh, that was a good sermon, Father. It's just what my husband needs to hear. And then a few minutes later, the, uh, the husband takes him aside, and that was a wonderful sermon, Father. That's just what my wife needs to hear. <laughs> so I will give you a piece of advice for what it's worth. When you hear the Word of God, be sure to apply it to yourself. Look for yourself in the Word of God. And at every Mass, I mean, there's so much. I had a priest friend who, who said, you need to get a word out. And this is actually uh, Matthew Kelly uh, says the same thing. When you go to Mass, you should be looking for that one thing, that one thing that speaks to you. You know, it might be in the Old Testament reading, if, you, you know, if you're Novus Ordo, or the New Testament epistle, or maybe it's in the Gospel. Maybe it's in the, in the Psalm or in one of the hymns, or in Father's homily. But some one thing is going gonna, is gonna to jump out at you if you're paying attention. I know going to uh, Mass for, you know, what, 20-some years now, and for the last 10 going to the traditional Mass, that you hear the same readings over and over. Every, every uh, especially in the, in the old rite, um, the, the, we don't have three years' worth of liturgical readings. It's just the... the the cycle of readings um, is just once, it repeats every year. And yet every year, every time I go to Mass and I hear these readings that I've read and, and heard dozens or hundreds of times, something stands out. There's something new. There's something that applies to my current situation. So, when you hear the Word of God, listen to it and apply it to yourself and to your own 
situation. And remember that the seed fell on all sorts of ground, but only the good soil received it. They who in a good and perfect heart, hearing the word, keep it and bring forth fruit in patience. And that is no nonsense. And that is our program for this week. Thank you so much for being along with us. Uh, I'm Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I want to remind you that we are entirely listener supported. So if you uh, have the opportunity and you have the means, uh, by all means, don't be afraid to visit the website, uh, vmpr.org, and uh, hit the donate button. Check us out on YouTube, on our smartphone app. Uh, you can access all those things right from the website. And uh, thank you for your support. Most especially, thank you for your prayers. We really do appreciate it. And uh, and we, I'm completely sincere when I say we couldn't do it without you. All right? And without the help of our good Lord and his blessed mother, the Virgin Most Powerful. All right, until next week, uh, that's it for No Nonsense Catholic. And until we meet again, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.